Good morning again. So, uh, Susan shared a little bit of her testimony of the week earlier. You know, she got sick Friday, got better today, and could sing. Uh, uh, I want to share something similar. I got ill Friday and was ill yesterday, and I'm ill this morning. Uh, but praise the Lord, he's, uh, he's still good to us. Uh, so playing hurt today a little bit, but I had my coffee and my Fruit Loops. So, uh, you know, those things heal from what I'm told. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but we're ready to, uh, to press on through the book of Judges today. Uh, and we're in a most difficult portion uh, of the book. Mark Dever says of the book of Judges uh, that what we see throughout is people become like the God they worship. The people of God come to take the land and the land ends up taking the people. Israel becomes like the Canaanites instead of conquering them. Our text this morning, Judges eleven twelve through twelve seven, is challenging. It's interesting and it's controversial. It's also the Word of God. I've titled this morning's message "Diplomacy, Deliverance, and Doom." I've divided the text as follows. We're going to look at verses twelve through twenty eight, and we'll see Jephthah's diplomacy. In verses twenty nine through thirty three, we're going to see God's deliverance. And Jephthah's stupid vow. In 34 through 40, we'll see the doom of Jephthah's house. And in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12, we'll see the doom of Israel. I want to exhort you this morning to speak the truth and seek peace. To be secure in Jesus. To renew your mind. To love your family well. And to rejoice in the power of the gospel. I think this text illustrates that people indeed become like what they worship. And so the main idea of the message this morning is to implore you to worship the one true God, Jesus. I hope that as we journey through this text this morning, we're able to see that the gospel shines brightest in the thickest darkness. Before we get into it, would you pray with me? God, this text, like so many others, reminds us of our responsibility to study the Bible well and to think deeply about what you have said, about the history of your people and about our history. It reminds us that all of the stories in the Bible are telling the same story, the story of humanity's desperate condition, our desperate need for a Savior, Jesus who sits at the climax of all the scriptures. Indeed, he is the one that all the stories point to. And so, God, we ask as we examine this text this morning, that we're able to understand it rightly in its original context. We're able to make application of it to our lives. But ultimately, that we would see it point us to you. That the name of Jesus would be glorified and honored and praised. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Last week we left Jephthah saying his words at Mizpah uh, before the rest of the Israelites and before the Lord as he was becoming their head, their leader. Remember we said without uh, God's reign there is no rescue and so the people had to accept Jephthah's reign as their head in order to have the rescue of God as Jephthah would serve as their judge. 
And this week we enter in right on the heels of that. He's just said his words. And so he's going to enter into Israel's most pressing conflict. And he begins with an uncommon approach to conflict. He seeks peace. His first action uh, as Israel's head is to simply ask the king of the Ammonites, why are you attacking us? What did we do to you? The Ammonite king makes his problem known in verses 12 and 13, and he he basically says, look, uh, you took our land, and we want it back. Jephthah again responds, not with a sword, but with his pen. And he demonstrates his great skill as a statesman and as a firm negotiator. The sophistication of his argument here shouldn't be missed. It is remarkable. He makes three arguments to refute the claims of the Ammonite king. He makes a historical argument, a theological argument, and an argument from legal precedent. In verses 15 through 22, we see the historical. Now, there are a lot of details here, and so I think it'll be helpful to just uh, let Keller comment on it and summarize them for us. He says this, When Israel came from Egypt, the Edomites and the Moabites lived in the land south of the Arnon. Israel asked both for permission to pass through their land, but they were refused. They traveled towards the land in question, north of Arnon and south of the Jabbok rivers, where the Amorites under King Sihon lived. Sihon attacked them, and Israel won the battle, and thus won the land by right of conquest. The land was never the Ammonites, who lived north of the river, and it was won by Israel fairly from the Amorites. Basically, Jephthah is telling the king of the Ammonites that he's misinformed or uninformed, that the land in question was never theirs. That indeed, Israel had rightfully won the land by conquest. He then moves on to a theological argument in verses 23 through 24. He says, look, the God of Israel gave us the land by giving us victory. Would not you take land if your God gave you victory? This argument would have held great weight in the culture because everybody believed in their own gods and uh, the gods were distinctly tied to the land. Keller notes that by using their own religious premises, Jephthah argues that the Lord, the God of Israel, gave them the land and they owned it rightly. Now, it should be noted that Jephthah's words here are somewhat controversial. Uh, Some argue that he's adopting a pantheistic worldview. Uh, And and Bloch, who adopts this view, says, uh, Jephthah displays contempt for his own theological traditions. Orthodox Yahwism acknowledges only one true God, who is also Israel's covenant Lord. He alone determines the boundaries of nations. And so by acknowledging the existence of other gods, Jephthah is displaying contempt. I take a more positive view of Jephthah here, and I think he's simply making use of the Ammonites' worldview. He's engaging them where they're at. Although, I must admit, his later actions will make it clear that he's adopted some cultural and pagan ideas about how to relate to God. Lastly, in verses 25 through 27, uh, Jephthah points out the fact that there's no precedent for the Ammonites to challenge Israel's rights to the land. It's been some 300-ish years, and they didn't try to take the land yet. None of their kings, none of their ancestors. And so Jephthah, as Bloch paraphrases, is is basically asking, who does this new king think that he is? Who do you think you are trying to take this land after so long? You have no historical right, you have no theological right, and you have no legal right to the land. Jephthah then restates his thesis and says, the land belongs to Israel. Let God judge between us 
who is right and who is wrong. And verse 28 reveals that his argument, though good, is to no avail. Verse 28 reads, But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. The Ammonite king does not offer a reply, but readies himself for war. I think we can learn from this passage that truth must be told and peace must be sought, but truth and peace do not always win the day. We have to speak the truth and seek peace, but sometimes truth is hard to hear. And the ability to gently correct someone and move towards peace is a fine art that few are skilled at. Indeed, we can see that there is a kind way to communicate truth that's winsome and a wicked way to communicate truth that is a detriment to the gospel. For example, imagine with me, uh, if you will, uh, two, two guys in their mid-50s. And they're out fishing together. Both men have been fishing for many, many years. One man is a more successful fisherman than the other. And as they're ready to, to bait their hooks, the more successful fisherman notices that the less successful fisherman is baiting his hook all wrong. He's doing it in such a way that when he actually casts his line out into the lake, that worm is going to fall off almost immediately. So the truth about baiting a hook is evident to the more successful of the two. The second fisherman is likely oblivious to this truth. Now, the more successful fisherman has a choice to make. He can say nothing and just allow them to continue uh, baiting their hooks and fishing as they have. He can communicate the truth kindly and say something like, let me show you an old trick that I use to bait my hook. Catches lots of fish this way. Or maybe try it like this. Or perhaps he can communicate the truth a little more harshly. You're so dumb. Have you ever even caught one fish that way? That is ridiculous. You can't even bait a hook. You are completely incompetent. I can't even believe I'm fishing with you. Which do you think is going to be more effective? It's obvious, right? Sometimes even truth that's communicated kindly is hard to be received because lots of us are stubborn. Thus the old adage, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. As Christians, we must share the truth of the gospel kindly. We should lead people to the living water, that's Jesus, that they might drink, instead of self-righteously condemning those that have not heard the good news. After all, we too were dead in our sins and dying of thirst until we heard and responded to the gospel of grace. And even though some will reject the good news, no matter how kindly we state it, We must speak the truth. We must seek peace. And we must pray for true peace in their souls. I think Jephthah here also provides an example of how we ought respond to false accusations that are leveled against us. We should speak truth, seek peace, and entrust ourselves to the Lord who judges judges justly. Got tongue-tied there. I think Jesus provides an even better example of this. Tim Keller writes, We follow a Savior whose truth was mocked and whose righteousness was ignored, and yet who compromised on neither. We can answer unfair accusations like the God that we follow, speaking truth, seeking peace, 
and trusting the Lord. Part two is going to bring us up now to God's deliverance in Jephthah's stupid vow. Now that war is inevitable, we come to verse 29 and we read that the spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah. And it causes him to rally men to his cause, to the Lord's cause. We note that God has actively empowered Jephthah, his judge, to achieve his divine objective. Now, we've seen this movie before in Judges, right? The victory is certain. The judge is going to rise up. They're going to just wreck those fools that are opposing God and oppressing his people. Then there'll be a short note about how there's peace and how long the judge reigned. And then it'll record the judge's death. But not here. Verse 30 is going to meet us unsuspecting. Even though the victory is secure, even though the spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah, we read this. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up to him for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minth, 20 cities, as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Jephthah, who in verse 27 was bold enough to entrust himself to the Lord's justice, the one who had the spirit of the Lord upon him, the one who had gone from being a pirate, the one who had gone from being a criminal to the commander of God's army, finds himself, in verse 30, unsure of himself, insecure. And so he vows. What led Jephthah to this insecurity? I'm all but certain it was a variation of that same simple question that was asked in a garden so long ago. When the serpent said to the woman, Has God really said... Perhaps it sounded a little bit more like this. Will God really give victory? Or can I really trust God to give something to me when I've offered nothing to him? I think we struggle with this same type of insecurity every time we sin, don't we? We don't really believe what God has said or what he's doing in our lives. Every time we sin, are we not declaring that we trust ourselves more than we trust God? How often do we think, can I really trust God to give to me something that I do not deserve? How often do we forget the gospel? Maybe it sounds a little bit more like this to you. Am I really saved? Now, I think this is a good question to evaluate. You you do need to know if you know Jesus or not. But I think it's a dangerous question as well. And it can become so when we dwell on it indefinitely and never provide an answer. When we doubt Jesus' ability to keep his promise. I think this takes many forms in our lives, right? Some people uh, never really believe that God could love them graciously, without cause. And so they try to do something for him, something to earn his favor. And they work themselves to the bone, trying to earn his grace. Others simply just get saved every Sunday and sometimes during the week if they go to services then. 
continually rededicating their lives or uh, re-coming to Christ over and over and over again, which in the end is just another way of trying to work out your salvation. Friends, the Bible tells us that we are to practice our faith with wisdom, and so we ought to make use of our reason to help shape our understanding and our thinking into harmony with the gospel and with the scriptures. We need to take hold of the mind of Christ by knowing his word. This looks like humbly reading and studying our Bibles so that we become more familiar with the God of the Bible and with his promises. Familiar with doctrines like the perseverance of the saints so that we might become assured of our salvation, secure in Christ instead of insecure and unstable in our thinking, like a wave tossed by the ocean and driven by the wind. Study the word so that you can be sure of who God is, and not led astray by the deception of the world and the insecurity of your deceitful heart. Sure that indeed he has given us his Holy Spirit who seals us and is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory, amen. I'm going to give you some homework this week. Start studying the Bible. I'd suggest maybe working through the, the short book of First John in your quiet time. Give special attention to uh, verse 13 of chapter 5. Think on it. This tells us the reason that, that John wrote his book. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Think on God's promises. Think on his goodness. Be secure in Jesus. Trust God. Jephthah's insecurity leads him to look for an insurance policy, a way to be sure of his victory. His wrong-headed thinking is based on the secular culture around him, wherein the lifeless gods of the Canaanites could be bought off or had their, have their favor purchased by extravagant offerings. And so in his insecurity, Jephthah tries to control the true God like the false gods. And so he vows. This is a, a tragic vow on a number of levels, but I think one of the ways is because the victory of God's people with Jephthah as their leader, was already sure. Jephthah knew much about Israel's past and about the Bible, as he demonstrates in his earlier uh, diplomatic speech. But he allows culture to color his view of God more than the Scriptures. And so he vows. And so we see uh, in verses 34 through 40, vividly, a grotesque scene. Imagine it with me. Jephthah, the strong soldier, returning home from the battlefield, victorious, careless for the first time since the war started. He walks towards his house. And staring at the front door, the memory of his vow floods his mind. He closes his eyes and grimaces quickly, slightly at the thought of who or what might be first to greet him. A slave, most likely. Not a terrible price to pay for victory, he thinks to himself. Then the unthinkable. 
The joyful song of tambourines lilts across the sky and nestles in his ear like a newborn to its mother's breasts. A wonderful song was a song of regret. He lifts his eyes to take in the images of his only child, his daughter, dancing, happy at her father's return. She'd been waiting every day since he left. Was this a dream? No. She danced so wonderfully, it sent him to his knees. It was a dance of ruin. The mighty warrior, Jephthah, sick to his stomach and brought to his knees by a beautiful young girl, tears his clothing and cries in anguish. For he cannot break his vow. He will kill her. The young girl, though, is remarkable. And she insists that her father keep his word. After all, victory does not come without cost. So she thinks. She asks only for a short time to mourn her young life. The fact that she would never marry. That she would never know love. She would never have children of her own. Father grants the request and then upon her return does the unimaginable. The author describes it in verse 39. He did with her according to his vow. Block writes, the irony of this scene is patent. The man who had tried to manipulate God to guarantee his peace has doomed himself. Jephthah would have no peace and no children. In a culture where parents were thought to live on through their progeny, he would have none. And thus killing his daughter effectively ended her life and his future seed in order to preserve his present position as Israel's leader. There are indeed many questions to be asked about the vow and about this story. And I'll attempt to raise and answer a few that you may have. First, let's consider the vow. If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So first, I think we need to ask, what exactly does this vow promise? Keller is helpful here. Many have interpreted Jephthah as promising God an animal sacrifice so that he was expecting an animal to come out to meet him when he returned and was planning to offer up that animal. But there are three reasons why this is not a right reading. First, it is unlikely that such homes had animals inside. Second, if an animal was meant, the noun would have been in a different form, appropriate for a neuter object. But it is not. Third, if Jephthah had promised God an animal, then when his daughter came through the doors, he would never have considered the promise to have had any binding force with regard to her. Others have attempted to make the tragedy of this narrative sting a little less by suggesting that the emphasis on Jephthah's daughter's virginity in verses 34 through 40 demonstrates that he likely meant to offer her in service to the Lord's temple. Keller points out that the two-month reprieve wouldn't make any sense if this were the case. It only makes sense if she were killed. Others, uh, such as Keel and Dillich, who favor this view, 
that she was offered in service to the Lord's temple, uh, bolster their argument by appealing to Jephthah's, Jephthah's character. Keelan Delich Wright. What we know of this brave hero by no means warrants any such assumptions. His acts do not show the slightest trace of evil or of rashness. He does not take to the sword at once, but waits until all his negotiations with the king of the Ammonites have been without effect. Nor does he utter his vow in the midst of confusion in battle, so that we might fancy he had made a vow in the heat of a conflict without fully weighting his words. But he uttered it before he set out against the Ammonites. They continue. It is inconceivable that God should have chosen a man who was capable of vowing and offering a human being as a sacrifice to carry out his work. Now, I do think Keel and Delich's argument has merit. Uh, and as I considered the two positions uh, in the past and this week as I prepared, um, I, I had a hard time between the two positions. But where I land is that I think the text explicitly teaches that Jephthah literally sacrificed his daughter. And I, I'm going to give you some reasons why. Block points out that Jephthah could have sacrificed his own peace and just left the vow unfulfilled. To be sure, he would have brought curse upon himself, but he would have spared his daughter. And in doing so, his own future, the future of his seed. Another option might have been he could have followed the Mosaic Torah and paid 20 shekels to the priest at the central shrine as compensation for the life of his daughter. Leviticus 27 verses 1 through 8 regulates such cases in which a person vows another person. That is, devotes a person to the sanctuary for sacred service. And then for reasons unspecified, finds it impossible or impractical to fulfill the vow. Admittedly, the present case is different. Inasmuch as Jephthah has vowed to sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering. But one may argue on the rabbinic principle of light and heavy that a rule that is applied in a lesser case is certainly applicable in a more serious case involving the very life of a human being. Lastly, Jephthah had the option to literally sacrifice his daughter. That, coupled with uh, his great distress, points to the literal sacrifice of his only child. Jephthah was concerned with preserving his own life and so he sacrificed his daughters. Additionally, I, I'm not sure why Kiel and Delich find it inconceivable or even unlikely that God would choose and use a wicked man capable of unthinkable evil to accomplish his will. Because the testimony of Scripture seems to be exactly that. God taking wicked sinners, men and women like you and me, capable of unthinkable evil, that is, sinning against an infinitely holy God to accomplish his will. Jephthah, after all, is listed in Hebrews 11 as an example of faith alongside David and Moses. This bolsters the truth that God saves the most vile of sinners. Moses, who killed a man with his bare hands. David, who committed rape and arranged the murder, the assassination of Uriah. And Jephthah, who sacrificed his daughter. Examples of faith. It's not just an Old Testament pattern either. God uses men who deny and desert him and calls them his disciples. He uses Paul, a man who hunted down and killed followers of Christ. 
Friends, this is the power of the gospel. It saves sinners. It saves people like you and me. It's powerful enough to make us clean. To make us right with God. This is the good news. That Jesus took the death that we deserved for killing for stealing, for lying, for lusting, for cheating, for being angry, for sleeping around, for worshiping gifts rather than the gift giver, for trying to earn our salvation, for gossiping, for our sin. He took death for our sin in our place. And he gives us his perfect life, his perfect righteousness, so that we can have peace with God. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. He conquered death by rising from the grave on the third day and now sits at the Father's right hand as our advocate, our brother, our righteousness, as our very identity. So that God, when he looks at Jesus, when he looks at us, he does not see our sin, but Christ's perfection. He sees us as an absolute beauty. That's the power of the gospel, the power to save. I think another question we must ask of this text is, why did Jephthah indeed promise a human sacrifice? After all, Deuteronomy 12, 31, which Jephthah would have been familiar with, says this, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. God hates this type of action. Yet Jephthah's insecurity causes him to doubt God's goodness. And so he tries to secure God's favor, God's grace, and control him with a vow. Like he might have. If he was like the surrounding pagan deities. See, a pagan worshiper uh, would offer a human sacrifice in order to say, let me show you how impressed I am by you, how awed I am by your power. But the God of the Bible wants only one kind of sacrifice. The self-sacrifice of offering God the lordship of every area of our lives. Even this is not to secure his favor but in response to it. It's affectionate obedience, not obligation. Jephthah's vow comes as a result of his syncretism. That is, his combining the biblical faith with the unbiblical faiths of the surrounding peoples. Keller points out that Jephthah teaches us we are mostly far more affected by our culture than by the Bible. And we are far more affected by our culture than we think. Jephthah ignored the Bible's teaching about the precious nature of human life. And instead listened to the culture around him about God, about spirituality, and about life. We are shocked by this story. Pretty certain. But I think that people from other times and other cultures and other places might be uh, just as shocked by how we act in our time. I think early Christians would be quite astounded 
at how much money we in the West spend on ourselves. I think Jephthah should cause us to look at ourselves and ask, what blind spots do I have? Where has culture affected my thinking more than the Bible? All cultures offer to us things that need to be accepted with joy, things that need to be redeemed for Christ, and things that need to be rejected. That which is opposed to the word of God ought be rejected. The problem for Jephthah was that his culture had infected his worldview. It had sickened his faith by distorting his understanding of the true God. He thought that the only way to bring victory to Israel was to promise a child's sacrifice. Had he spent time renewing his mind in the scriptures, he would have known that God hates child sacrifice. He's the Lord of covenant promise. And his faithfulness endures from one generation to the next. Jephthah thought he had to kill his child to keep his life. For if you did not keep your vow in that culture, it meant that you would certainly die. This is what his culture told him. He had to kill his child to keep his life. Likewise, our culture tells this same lie to pregnant women. You have to kill your child to keep your life. Now, before you get worried about me uh, getting political, let me steal a quick word from Matt Chandler and tell you that this is not a political issue even though it's sometimes fought in the political arena. There's a biblical, ethical, and spiritual issue that to our shame, few of us have been moved by. It's a truth issue. The Bible clearly teaches that the Imago Dei, that is, that men and women are made in the image of God, and that they live eternally, that they are valuable, is present upon conception. When a sperm meets an egg, life is created by God and it is precious to God. This is a Bible issue, a Christian issue. Abortion is a terrible evil that's being passed off as a woman's rights issue. That is women that are already unborn. Unborn women have no rights. Did you know that with uh, 3D sonograms, after eight weeks, we can see babies smile, suck their thumbs, respond to the sound of their parents' voices, and recoil from pain? Like, that's mind-blowing. Do you understand that, like, when a doctor goes to do a procedure on a young baby only in the womb eight weeks, you know, my wife was still throwing up at eight weeks. That's really early. That that baby knows, like, when that needle goes towards its foot, ow, that hurts. It recoils from the pain. Do you know by 21 weeks, with just a little bit of help, a baby can live outside of the womb? Here's a startling fact. Nearly all of the one million abortions committed in the Western world this past year were committed after that period of time. The vast majority of abortions that are taking place are not taking place because the woman's life is at stake or because there was some horrific rape or circumstance. But listen to me, merely out of convenience, 
I'm not ready for this. I did not sign up for this. So it's murder. Listen to the insanity of it. Murder for the sake of convenience. It's legal in our country. It's a sacrifice to the God of self. And that's the idol that rules this country. Don't believe me? Let me, let me read a portion of an article by a wildly pro-choice lady. Uh, her name is Mary Elizabeth Williams. Uh, just listen to the title of the article. So what if abortion ends life? She writes, Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancy, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make one iota less. It doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. This is our culture, a culture of death. She continues, here is the complicated reality in which we all live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. This is insane. Who determines whose life is more valuable than someone else's? Who has that responsibility? Some in the pro-choice camp argue, the woman does, of course. It's her body. But that's foolishness. The baby might be in the woman's body, but it has a body of its own. It's not the woman's body. Chandler adds, the baby has its own brain, its own kidneys, its own heart that pumps its own fingerprint. And the argument that the woman should get to do with her body as she wants, it's bull. Go prostitute yourself and see if you can do whatever you want with your body. Get arrested. You don't have the right to do whatever you want with your body. You think you do? Drive naked 95 miles an hour home today and see what happens. You can't do whatever you want. It's insanity. The government indeed tells us all sorts of things all the time. What we can and cannot do. And right now, they're telling us that we can kill our children. And this is not an issue that's far from you. Statistically speaking, one in four women have abortions. One in four. That should stagger you. Let me ask you. What are we doing to fight this injustice? What are you doing? I want to exhort you to engage this issue first by renewing your mind. Romans 12, 2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Think about your worldview and how you approach life. Think about what the culture is telling you. 
does it square with Scripture? It might not lead you to peace when you speak the truth in love. In fact, it might lead you to a cross like it did our Savior. I want you to engage by promoting life. Give of your time and of your money. Give to things like the Pregnancy Support Center that visited us in January. Support families that are adopting children. Consider adoption for yourself. Foster children. Visit orphanages. Don't just do nothing. Do something. The Bible is clear. Proverbs tells us, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. We cannot stand on the sidelines. We must not be silent. We must speak for those without a voice. Renew your mind and speak up. Quickly. Look with me at the war that takes place in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12. I'm just going to summarize. Basically, the men of Ephraim are angry again that they've missed out on the glory of victory. Remember, they were angry when Gideon had victory and hadn't called them up and they missed out on the glory of victory. This time, they do more than just complain. They threaten to burn his house down. They are jealous. Now, we've all been jealous before, right? That person that does everything better than us. They're good at everything. Usually we kind of think to ourselves, man, I hate that guy. I think this type of situation just reveals that we are finding our identity, our worth, and something that we do rather than in Christ. God has made us all with unique gifts to fulfill a unique role in the church, in the body of Christ, that we might uniquely minister to one another. Therefore, we ought not be envious of the gifts and callings of others, but rejoice in what God is doing in and through others. And through their gifts. Ephraim was not rejoicing at what God had done through Jephthah. And so they threatened to burn his house down. He responds to their jealous anger by first justifying his position. And then without patience, calling the men of Gilead together to battle. And he and Gilead strike down Ephraim. 42,000 members of the people of God die at the hands of the people of God. There is no peace mentioned by the author, as with the other judges. There is only blood in the Jordan River as Jephthah's reign comes to an end. Keller writes, Jephthah was careful to be diplomatic and peaceful with his own position, when his own position was at stake, and when facing the enemies of God's people. But here, he does not hesitate to strike out against those within God's people who oppose him. He treats God's people far worse than he does himself or the world. And we are not so different. If we spend as much time pursuing unity and overlooking insults within our churches as we do, seeking to remain on good terms with the world and our communities, we would be far less divided and far more loving. Friends, I exhort you to love the church well. When I think about this, it reminds me of uh, my selfishness in the first year of my marriage. That was a pretty hard year. Uh, And a large reason for that was uh, I was really, really selfish, and I almost never extended uh, grace and kindness to my wife. I was far more benevolent with uh, patience and kindness to others than I was to her. 
When in actuality, as my spouse, it was her that deserved the best of me. She deserved it most. Likewise, we ought to have special affection for the family of God. We ought to love one another well. Engage with this. Encourage somebody this week. Call someone that you don't normally talk to. Build them up. Send a nice note along. Let's build up the body of Christ here at Rockfish. Let's have true fellowship with one another. Let's strengthen one another. Let's live out the gospel in community with one another. In Christ, we are offered more than we can ever imagine. But more is demanded of us than we ever thought. Community and fellowship with one another is demanded of us. And we are offered infinite riches in Christ. I think this section of scripture shows us that men and women, because they become like what they worship, when, when we worship lifeless gods, we end up becoming ourselves lifeless. We end up not caring about life at all. We cultivate a culture of death. When men and women depend on other men and women or things for their salvation, there is no peace. There is no harmony. There is only doom. When men and women depend on Jesus for their salvation, there is no war. There is no striving. There is no unrest. There is no doom. There is no tear. There is love and joy and the harmony of all things. True wellness of man. True wellness of nature. True peace. True shalom. Only Jesus is qualified to die for wicked people like Moses and David and Jephthah and Paul and Peter and you and me. Only he is able to make us right with God. I speak this truth to you this morning. And I hope that you are truly seeking peace, seeking rest. Because you will only find it in Jesus. He bids you come, rest, and rejoice in the gospel.